The Song of Solomon, that Song of Songs, although he wrote 1,005 songs, this was the hit. This was the one. And we left off last time, as there he was describing his beloved and how he loves her. We saw there in chapter 4, verse 7, he said, there's no spot in you. I love that. How Jesus Christ, our husband, is making sure it says in Ephesians 5 that there's no spot in us either. But we are before him and perfect in righteousness. And he's maintaining that righteousness by his tender care of us. And there he says in verse 9, Oh, you've ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You've ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with the link of your necklace. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse. How much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes and all spices. Your lips, oh my spouse, drip as a honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. And we just sense the passion of love that Jesus has towards us, the church as well as Solomon towards his bride here. And now he goes on to say in verse 12, and that's where we pick up tonight, <clears throat> a garden enclosed or locked up or barred, set apart for him, you see, is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. So he's looking at his bride saying, you've kept yourself only for me. I sense that, that you have separated yourself, that you are my precious garden. In you is incredible fruits, incredible spices, and there's this spring that's there that only I drink of. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, fragrant henna with spikenard and spikenard and saffron and calamus and cinnamon with all the trees of the frankincense and myrrh and alloys with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters. Boy, does that bring to mind John 7 where Jesus said, and out of your innermost beings will gush forth, forth torrents of living water because the Holy Spirit would come and live within us. And now he's Describing his wife in that way, a well of living waters. The streams from Lebanon. And now he says in verse 16, Awake, O north wind, that cold wind. And come, O south wind, that warm wind. They have the same thing we do here in Southern California. They have those warm Santa Ana winds. And blow upon my garden, that its spices may flow out. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat, it's pleasant fruits. And so here he, he comes and he says, this is my garden. It's all locked up. It's set aside for me. And now I'm coming to my garden. Oh, I just, as I'm walking towards the garden, let the cold wind come. You know, there's times in our walk when the cold times come, don't they? I hate the cold times. I hate going through the valleys. I hate going through those times where I read the Word and I, and I feel like I didn't get anything out of it. And I pray and it's like the heavens are shut up. And I try to worship and my heart is numb. And I know that God allows us to go through those cold times that we are doing what we're doing by faith. 
We're not being swept along by emotion. We're not swept, being swept along by just the feelings of our flesh. But in reality, I have to question myself, why do I lift my hands? Because I don't feel it right now. I would rather just put my hands down and cross my arms and give a big yawn right now. Ah. Why, why am I not going to do that? Because the Bible tells me to lift my hands into His name, to declare His loving kindness. And oh, how His loving kindness is so great, even though I don't feel it right now. I know His loving kindness is great. It says, clap your hands unto the Lord. Shout unto God with the voice and try. Why am I doing it? Why am I spending time in the Word? I don't feel like I'm getting anything out of it. Because God's Word tells me to abide in His Word daily. And so in those cold seasons, let the wind blow. And what's going to come out of it? Well, we're going to know, aren't we? There's a lot of people that can walk with the Lord in the good times. There's a lot of people that can walk in the Lord when the feelings are there and everything seems to be flowing great in their life. But then all of a sudden, we hit those cold, hard times. What comes out? I hope it's the same beautiful fragrance. I hope it's the same beautiful smell of fruitfulness even when that cold wind's blowing. And then, of course, when the warm wind blows. We love that. So nice and warm and, and just the joyful time. And he says, let it be blowing out. So as I'm coming there, as I'm approaching the garden, I can smell the various scents. And, you know, I, I grew up in Central California, and I used to love to go down where the orange trees were. I used to have a motorcycle. I used to just go down the orchards, just screaming down the orchards. And, but I just loved that smell of the orange trees. I just loved the, the freshness. Or to go out into a rose garden in the springtime. What a beautiful smell. And here he's saying, come now. And, and as the wind begins to blow, let me smell it. And then I want to come to my garden. And man, I, I want to eat up of it. Now, the Bible tells us to be fruitful. You say, right, I, I need to be fruitful, but why? It's not so you can eat of your fruit. The orange tree is not fruitful so we can have oranges. The orange tree is fruitful that others might be refreshed, that others might be blessed, that others might taste of the sweetness and enjoy that fruit. In the same way, why am I living an obedient life? Why am I sacrificing and consecrating and sanctifying myself before God for Him? Well, gee, I'm denying myself and sacrificing and, and things are still hard. You're, you're not being fruitful for you. You're being fruitful that the Lord might eat of those fruits of your life. That He might enjoy who you are. He might enjoy the fruitfulness of your life. And then he goes on to say, in chapter 5, I've come to my garden, my sister, my spouse, I've gathered my myrrh with my spice, I've eaten my honeycomb and my honey, I have drunk my wine with my milk. So he says, man, I've come and I've filled up, I'm overflowing, I am blessed, I've, I've partaken of all that I desire from that fruitful place. And now he says, so eat, O friends. Drink, yes, drink deeply, O oh, beloved ones. No, now he invites his friends to come on in and to enjoy of the fruitfulness of that garden, referring to the life of his wife. In John 15, verse 8, 
8, it says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And so we see that, again, this is how God is glorified in our lives, that we're a fruitful life. And here we see, because the Lord enjoys this, the sense, the senses, the fruitfulness of our life. But then also it says in Galatians 5.23, Now the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Who benefits from all of that? You? No others. When I'm kind, others are benefited. When I'm joyful, others are benefited. When I have self-control, others are benefited. When I'm loving, others are benefited. And so now he's saying, yes, I am glorified in your fruitfulness. Yes, I am satisfied with your fruitfulness. And now your fruitfulness is so abundant. Not only do I eat of it and am satisfied, but now I want all the brothers and sisters to come and to be enjoying the fruits of your life. And that's really the design that God has for the church. That we, through speaking, love one to another, would see the body of Christ grow up together into that fruitful body that the Lord so desires us to be. Well, in verse 2, we have a very similar scenario. It's happened last week. Do you remember last week, uh, there in chapter 2, verse 8, he was saying, he was leaping upon the mountains, and he came to his bride, and he said, hey, wake up and come on up on the mountain. And uh, it's springtime, and she says, uh, I'm going to go back to sleep. And then she woke up at nighttime, and she's looking all around frantically and can't find him. Boy, and she, when she found him, she grabbed on, and she says, I'm never letting you go again. That's not going to ever happen again. Well, it did happen again. In chapter 5, verse 2, I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, open for me, my sister, my love. My dove, my perfect one, listen how gently and loving Jesus is speaking to us. For my head is covered with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. He's been out all night long and, and uh, the dew of the night being out with the sheep is, is upon him. And of course, this is a beautiful picture of Jesus because it tells us in Matthew 8, when one of the followers said, I'll follow you, Jesus. He said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And... Uh, here we, we see that picture of Jesus here, that he's coming to, though he's coming to his wife, saying, "Hey, I, I'm here, and I, I haven't I've been uncovered all night. I haven't had a place to put my head. Open the door for me that I could come in. And then I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? This is her response. Um, you know what? I, I'd really like to, but I just took my robe off, and I'm already in bed." How can I put it on again? Oh, it would be so hard to get out of bed and put my robe back on. Oh, I've washed my feet. How can I defile them? I just wash my feet, get them all nice and dry, just the way I like them, before I put them under the sheets. And just as I'm getting ready to put them under the sheets, you want me to get back on the floor and get them all dirty again. My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. I arose to open for my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. So now she, she realizes, that's stupid, I'm going to get up. And she hears him at the door with that response saying, I don't really want to get out of bed and, and do it for you. And so 
she thinks about it, she gets up, she goes to the door now, and she's thinking, oh, it'll be so good to see him, so good to be with him. And I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. So now we have that same scenario. Remember in Psalms 27, David says, I heard your voice saying, seek my face. And my heart said, your face, O Lord, will I seek. That's the response that God wants. So often, we hear that still, small voice. So often, we sense that gentle tug of the Spirit. Because our Lord is not a forceful person. He is one that gently leads us. He is one that gently directs us. He doesn't have a big whip on a horse like a cattle drive. Come on, you know. He's a gentle shepherd just walking by the sheep. And if we don't listen to his voice, if we don't allow him to tug on the strings of our hearts, we're going to end up in that place where we're missing out. You hear people so often say, you know, I just don't feel his presence. I don't have that joy in his company. I hear others say, oh, it was so awesome. I just couldn't wait to get up in the morning and get in the word. Oh, it was so awesome. I just worshiped the Lord and I didn't want it to stop. I just wanted it to keep going. I don't feel that way. I hear people saying that Jesus is my best friend, my closest friend. I don't really feel like Jesus is my friend at all. Well, you know what? The Bible says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The Lord is wanting to cultivate that relationship with you. And boy, if you don't get anything tonight, get this. God is a person. He's not an it or a thing. He's a who. And as a person, we can cultivate a relationship with Him. And our relationship with Him, just like with anybody else, is as deep as you want it to go. And I mean that by working at it. Friendships don't just happen. They happen over a long period of consistent time of working at them. And it takes a lot of work to make a friendship work. And it's no different in marriage. Somehow there's supposed to be some magical little friendship that happens because we have a marriage certificate. It doesn't work that way. You can become distant roommates instead of one flesh as the Lord's desired it to be. It all comes back to that intensity of heart and to the degree of work you're willing to put in to that relationship. So you need to ask yourself, have I really invested time? Have I really worked at a friendship with Jesus? Bottom line, have you been a friend of the Lord? The Bible says, he who has friends is one who shows himself friendly. Have you just come to the Lord with your grocery list and said, God, I need this and I need this and this and this, and by 11 o'clock today would be great, see you later. There's a lot of people have marriages like that, isn't it? Here's your job description, here's your job description. You do your thing, I do my thing, and we sort of cohabitate. And it's really not a joyful intimacy, is it? And so often, again, we need to realize that we need to work at that relationship. And he came to her. He was willing to work with her, but yet she 
didn't want to put forth the effort to make that friendship work. And so when she finally woke up and said, I need to do that, all of a sudden he's now gone. And she said when she saw that, my heart leaped up when he spoke and I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. So she remembers that very difficult time now she went before when she didn't get up, when he encouraged her to wake up, and she didn't, and what a difficult time that was, and how she finally found him and said, I'll never let this happen again, and all of a sudden she realizes, oh, it happened again, and so now, again, she's anxious, and she's looking, but this time, remember earlier, she came to the watchman and asked where he was, have you seen the one I love, and they didn't help her, they couldn't give her any help, but now notice she comes to the watchman who went about the city and found me. And what, notice what they did this time. They struck me and they wounded me. And the keepers of the wall took my veil away from me. Which again would make her look now like a prostitute. The watchmen. We don't know exactly who they were. But they were those servants of the king who were to help her to know where the king was. And this time when they saw her, they did not recognize her as his wife. They didn't identify that relationship at all. And they're just like, who, who are you to be looking after the king, quit chasing the king, and they struck her. And then they took her veil away to make her look like a, a woman of the night, to make her look like a prostitute around town. And so often I think that, again, we can lose patience with people. So often people do struggle. And I have seen people struggle in their lifetime for years. And you think, man, this person is a loser. <laughs> it's a waste of time to help them. It's a waste of time to encourage them. But you know what? I'm so glad God doesn't think that. And we've got to be careful sometimes as brothers and sisters to think God is thinking that. And I'll tell you what, I've pastored long enough to see hopeless situations be far more than not only hopeless, but incredible situations. I did a wedding, oh, a few years back now. A gal in our church who had been in our church for years, her husband, she had been divorced from him years earlier. He was a drug addict and, and just that whole lifestyle, it's as bad as you can imagine. And he had, they had a son who was in the church who got saved and was growing and a wonderful man of God. But the dad would come in and go out and come in and go out and get, you know, be repentive and go back out. And she, and she finally, oh, years earlier, 12 years earlier, just said, that's it. I'm not opening my heart to him anymore because he just comes in like a tornado and messes our life up and goes back out and we're worse off than we were. And truly, we did give up. I mean, it was just, this guy was a hopeless guy. But then, all of a sudden, God got a hold of his heart. We saw at different times where it looked like he was going to give his life to the Lord and start walking with the Lord. And so, when he said he did, we sort of doubted it. <laughs> but then, six months went by, a year went by, two years went by, and it was clear God had made this guy a new creation. Just about oh, a year and a half ago, two years ago, after 19 years of being divorced, they got remarried. 
And you look at that and you just say, wow. And how we need to wake up and realize, you know what? As much as we want to beat up guys and just say, would you go away? Would you leave us alone? We're tired of you messing with us. We're tired of you coming in and going out. We're tired of your failings and hurting everybody when you fell. How we would just like to sort of beat them up, but we've got to be careful. And to realize that love is long-suffering. And love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And you know what? By the grace of God, people do change. Only by the grace of God and only by the power of His Spirit. Outside of that, people are pretty much the same. But God does change people. And so, here this time they mistreat her. And let's make sure that we never do that. And then she cries out, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am lovesick. So now she says to the believers, those virgins who have been following this whole situation, she says, let him know. I, I repent. I'm sorry I didn't open the door to him. I'm sorry. I said, oh, you know, I'm, my feet are going to get all dirty and I'm already in bed and I don't want to get put my robe back on. Tell him I'm sorry. I'm lovesick. I wish I had never done it. That's not my real heart. And how we need to be so careful to not become lazy, lackadaisical, half-hearted in our love for God. We had a, a town meeting here about this property. We actually have, you could pray for it, July 26, where we are petitioning the county to be able to have 250 kids at the school here and uh, actually be able to enlarge it. We had bought some acreage up there and acreage here years back, and we're combining it all now, and something that's been in the works for oh, four years, and the county finally is getting it all together for us. But we went to a meeting, and somebody said, yeah, you know, they're parking up on, across the street, up on the hill. And somebody gets all irate, well, they, they can't do that. And somebody said, there's no way anybody's going to park that far away and walk all the way down that hill to church. <laughs> Without saying anything, silence. But that was their mind. There's no way anybody's going to park in the dirt, walk all the way down to go to church. There's no way. Yet, they didn't know that those two and a half acres we were filling up with about 200 cars every Sunday when we met here on Sundays. And I love that. People weren't saying, well, I'll get my feet all dirty if I park here. Forget it. Let's get out of here and go home. But yet, there was that diligence. And you know, I, I really saw that in that season. I I felt horrible, to be honest with you, going, God, I just hate that. I hate that people are parking in the dirt and it starts to rain a little bit. And, you know, and, and the Lord just spoke to my heart and said, you know what? It's my test. It's, it's me working on hearts. And I said, okay, God, you do what you want to do in your season. In the same way, I often say, man, those guys are down there at 6.37 every morning setting up the gymnasium. Group of guys afterwards staying around, tearing down. And I sometimes just hurt for those guys because they're there week in, week out, going for it, serving. 
And again, the Lord just speaking to my heart. You know what? It's me. I'm testing the hearts. I'm testing the faithfulness. I'm working on them to be servants that they truly might lead my people. And so the Lord will come and inconvenience us. The Lord will come and require great things of us and let our hearts be, oh, that's my money. Oh, that's my time. Oh, I'm so uncomfortable because I had this little plan and now you're messing my whole little plan up. That we'll just automatically have that response, yes, Lord, because I'm just so in love with you. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Whatever you desire, I say yes. Well, in verse 9, What is my beloved more than another beloved? O fairest among the women, what is your beloved more than another beloved that you are so you have so charged us? So now the virgins, the daughters of Jerusalem, these believers, they ask, Well, why why is it that you're so lovesick over this guy? Why is it that that you are always talking about him and longing for him and asking us to help you find him and and now she gives a description, as he had given a description of her back in chapter 4. Now she gives a description of him. And in verse 10, she says, My beloved is white and ruddy. He is white. He is pure. There is no fault found in our Lord Jesus Christ. No sin. Although he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet he was without sin. He is ruddy. The word ruddy there is red, or literally, it means to show blood. The root word of ruddy is to show blood, and I love this. He is pure, and again, he shows blood. He's red from what? From being our sacrifice. Jesus, who died on the cross for us. He is chief, or he is distinguished. He stands out from 10,000. There's none like him. You can go and study through history. There is no one in all of history who has changed the course of history as Jesus Christ. It's the year 2002 right now throughout the entire world because Jesus Christ walked the face of this earth 2002 years ago. And now when you study history, you have the time before Jesus Christ, the B.C., and you have the time after Christ, A.D. Now they're trying to change it to say B.C.E., before the Common Era, but ask the historian, what's the Common Era? Well, just when everybody came to agree on what? <laughs> uh, what exactly did they all get together and make a Common Era about? No. Even though they try to rewrite history, they can't change the facts. And the facts are that the entire world's dating system for hundreds of years have been based upon Jesus Christ walking the face of this earth. There's none like Him. His head is like the finest gold. And if you've been with us through the Old Testament, you know gold is the metal of royalty. It says in Colossians chapter 2, there in verse 9, it tells us, for in Him, Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him who is the head of all principalities and powers. He is the head, and we are complete 
as we grab on and hold on to Jesus, the head of all things. And his, his locks, his, referring to his hair, are wavy and black as a raven. In other words, he's not getting gray. There's no coloration in it. It's just a, a, a solid black color that does not change. And we know of our Lord, it says in Hebrews 13.8, that our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In James chapter 1, verse 17, it says there's no shadow of turning within Him. That He is just a solid. His head is that of gold, but yet His hair is that of a life that never changes. His eyes are like doves. In other words, that gentle creature. But the river's by the rivers of water, washed with milk. So you see that dark black eye of the dove with its white surrounding it. It stands out very clear. But what do you see in the eyes of a dove? Harshness? Meanness? Do you walk up to a dove and it looks like it's growling at you with its eyes? <laughs> Whoa, don't touch it! Might bite you! What do you see in the eyes of a dove? A gentle creature and you want to reach out to it and embrace it and touch it. In the same way, the eyes of our Lord are gentleness and tender mercies. It tells us in Hebrews 4, verse 14, that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us in all our weaknesses, but quite the opposite. He's one who empathizes with us in all our weaknesses. We don't have a condemning God. We have a loving God. We have a God who is, there is no condemnation in Him. When you look into the eyes of Jesus, it gives you hope. It doesn't cast you down in hopelessness, quite the opposite. His gentle eyes are saying, get up and walk with me again. I'll wash you and I'll forgive you. And then it goes on and says, His cheeks are like the bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. So as you go to embrace the Lord and you put your cheek next to His cheek, he has that certain scent, that certain smell. We were discussing this week as they, with my kids as they were talking about uh, that one girl in Utah who disappeared. They got some of her clothing and they're having the dog smell it to find her. And well, Why are they having the dog smell her clothes? And I said, you know, you could take somebody's clothes and wash them in a washer and dry them. And you, that dog can still smell those washed clothes and still pick up the scent of a person. Did you know every person they've discovered has 150 unique smells about them? Isn't that amazing? But here he's saying, as I'm pressing my cheeks upon you, as I'm hugging you, I just have that, that smell, that remembrance. I can remember my grandpa Newberry and being around him and that smell. It just, I, I can even now, there's some times, he's passed away many, many years ago, but there's some times I can catch a smell of something and immediately my mind floods back to being there with him. And so you also have those familiar smells that, that kindle within you a desire for that intimacy, the desire of longing. And, and as I have that, I, how I want to embrace you and be ne next to you, his lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. And again, our Lord is the Word and He speaks that Word. It tells us in Psalms 19, verse 10, 
It says that his word is more desired than gold. Yea, much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. And I'll tell you what, the word of God truly is that in my heart. How I just love to watch the face of our Lord and to watch him as he opens his mouth and I hear coming from his lips that sweet and precious word that fills my soul. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. So now we see the rod, the rod of correction, the rod of iron. So yes, he is a God of love. He's a God of gentleness. He's a God that speaks forth these lovely things, but he's also a just God. And we see justice as he is the king. His hands are firm. He's not some wimp. If you were to touch the hands of God, you would find calluses, for he's a, he's a man's man. And he's a God of judgment. The Bible makes it very clear in Galatians 6, in verse 7 and 8, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. God is a God not of judgment, but of justice. Right now, God is not judging anybody. Right now, God's arms are open wide to every single one. He wishes to have mercy upon all. All the Sodom and Gomorrahs in the world, the only thing they'll hear from God is not, I'm getting ready to destroy you with fire, but I want to forgive you. Turn from your wicked ways that I might heal you. God is for every single person. But at the same time, God is a God of justice. And if you go out and drink and alcohol, you'll blow out your liver. <laughs> you'll mess your body up. And it's not God saying, I'm judging you, but you have reaped what you sown because God has built within the fabric of our universe His nature, and that nature is loving and as beautiful as it is to go look at the awesomeness of the ocean, to hear, but you also hear the thunder of those waves. As you look at the, the beauty of a forest, but yet those great limbs can also break and they crash with the thunder. So God is a God, yes, of beauty and of gentleness and of love, but He's also a God of justice. He loves righteousness. He loves what's true. He loves what's fair. He loves what is just. And we need to realize that. And so often I think people say, well, you know, God will forgive me. It doesn't matter what I do. You know what? You're right. God will forgive you. But boy, does it matter what you do. And God wants you to be blessed, not hurt. God wants your life to go forward, not be stuck where you are. And it's that where you come to understand He's also a God of justice. His body is carved ivy and laid with saffrons. That's exactly what um, I see when I look in the mirror. <laughs> Legs are pillars of marble set in bases of fine gold. Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> The word here for body, and the King James actually translates it, belly. Looking at that stomach muscle. And again, in the Jewish understanding, the stomach is the seat of emotions. We say, oh, I love you with all my heart. They said, I love you with all my guts. That's what they would say. I love you where I can feel it in my stomach, that churning. And we know the Lord is also a God of emotions. We see in Isaiah 53, verse 3, that he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. 
And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1, I went through all these hardships so I can comfort you. And we find in John 11 that with Mary and Martha, it says that Jesus wept. That He is one who, again, fills with our emotions. He hurts with us. He rejoices with us. He's one there with us. And His legs, again, they're strong. They're pillars. They don't move. He continues to go forward in His plan, in His will, in His desire, and all of time is marching in the step of God's divine plan that was decided before ages, before ages, before ages. Read the last little bit of the book of Job, and he makes it clear. He says that your will cannot be thwarted. You are on a train track of your divine will, and nothing can derail that track. And then he goes on and says, His mouth is most sweet, yes, He is altogether lovely. Again, the mouth, speaking His grace. It says that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That Word became flesh, and what did we discover? Grace upon grace. His mouth is speaking those sweet things, and He is altogether. Notice, He's the only one altogether. The rest of us really aren't all together. No matter how all together we may look, there's some areas in our life that are just not all together. But Jesus says, I will be your peace. The Hebrew word is shalom, which has that understanding. Healing, wholeness, completeness, entirety. Jesus saying, I will make you all together like me, who's all together. And that's where the Lord wants to make us, put us in our right mind, clothed at His feet, saying, Jesus, I want to be with you. And that's the Lord's desire for every one of us, that we also would be with Him all together. And when He's all together, it's lovely. And when we're all together, it's also lovely. And then, this is my beloved, she says, and this is, notice, my friend. On the relationship aspect, that's really what the gals desire. That's really what the wife desires in the husband, is a companion, a friend. And here she sensed that in her husband. Jesus made it clear to his disciples. In John 15, he says, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I've made known to you. And really, that's what friendship in a nutshell is. Taking the time and communicating, talking. And you guys who are married, just ask yourself, do I take the time to talk to my wife? Do I take the time to tell her what I'm doing? Do I take the time to share what's going on in our day? When sin came in the world, we fell. And we are in fallen creatures. And there's a part of a guy that is just still very fallen and very lame. And guys just don't like to talk about stuff. We just will sort of keep going along and going along until things are just so horrible, we have to yell at each other a little bit. Okay, 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 now we've got to figure it figured out. And we go forward. But gals, you see, they, that one aspect of the nature of God is still intact. And they want to know, how was your day? What happened in your day? 
Really, how did that make you feel? What are you thinking? Guys have no problem. <laughs> Guys have no problem going, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Got any food? Mm, huh. <laughs> What's the drink? Uh. Want to go play basketball? Uh. But really, as the Bible says, as we submit one to another in the fear of God, that's really where we start to grow. And here our Lord is one who communicates. It's all about communication. In the beginning was the word, communication. And the Lord communicated to us, and He continues to communicate to us. And that's how our whole relationship is based on. He communicates to us through the Word. We communicate it to Him through prayer. And by His Spirit, He speaks to our heart. It's all about communication. And that's how we come closer to Him. That's how we prosper in Him. That's how we continue to mature in Him, is through communication. And she says, He's altogether lovely, and you know what? Yes, he's, he's my lover. Yes, he's my beloved. Yes, but more than that, we're friends. We really aren't just stuck with each other. We really enjoy each other. And she had this sense that he really was her friend. And then she says, Oh, daughters of Jerusalem. In other words, be envious. It's great what I have. Well, in chapter 6... Where has my beloved gone, O fairest among women? Where is your beloved turned aside? So now the daughters are speaking. Where is your beloved? Where did he go? Where did he turn aside? That we may seek him with you. Man, we want to know this guy. We want to meet this guy. We want to be around this guy. Where did he go? And now as she questions, as they question her, where is he? She realizes he's not gone anywhere. I know exactly where he is. My beloved has gone in his garden. You know, so often we feel like God has forsaken us. God has left us. But he has never left us. The Bible has given us that promise. He will never leave us or forsake us. And if you're looking around for the presence of God, it's not that he's gone anywhere. It's that you have gone away from him. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His passion, His love, His desire, His longing for you does not go up and down. It's yours that goes up and down. So she's looking everywhere. Oh, where am I going to find God? Where am I going to find Him? Where can I have Him? And then they say, man, why are you so wanting this guy? Come on, let's go drinking. Come on, let's go to the beach. Come on, let's go to the movies. Why is it that you need to have this guy? What's, what is so incredible about him that you have to have him? And then she describes him. She's going, then they all say, let's go find him. Where can we find him? I want him too. And then she realizes as she's questioned, he's in the garden. Of course he's in the garden. To the beds of the spices, to feed his flock in the gardens, and to gather lilies. Oh, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feeds his flock among the lilies. I know exactly where he is, where he always is. And all I have to do is go and join him where he is. He's truly my beloved. He truly has never left me, nor forsaken me. And now the Lord speaks. Oh, my beloved, you are beautiful as Terza. The name Terza is delightsomeness, or to be pleased with. 
You are beautiful and I am pleased with you. So often we stumble, we fall, we're not where we should be, we're not what we should be. And we start thinking, oh, God must think I'm horrible. God must think I'm, uh, you know, He just wants to get rid of me. Sorry He got stuck with me. But it tells us in Psalms 103, the Lord knows our frame. As a father pities his child, so the Lord pities us. And ahead of time, He crowned us with loving kindness and tender mercies. God knows your frame before He ever chose you. And let me tell you something. No matter how off we can be, and sometimes we can be, you are always precious to God. My kids do things all the time that I just want to wring their neck. But I never for a second stop loving them. And if somebody comes up and asks me about them, I just tell them all the great things they've done. I can't even think of one rotten thing about them at that moment when you ask me about them. In the same way with the Lord, He just remembers all the great things you've done. And all He does is say, Oh, I'm so pleased with you. I love you so much. Lovely as Jerusalem. Boy, study out what God says about Jerusalem and you'll know what He thinks about you. It says that it's the joy of the whole earth. <laughs> That's you. You are the joy of this entire earth to God. Awesome as an army with banners. You're like a beautiful parade with all the banners flying. Boy, parades are fun, aren't they? And that's what God thinks about you. You're, you're beautiful. You're lovely. You're awesome. Turn your eyes away from me, for they have overcome me. He says, oh man, you're overwhelming me. You are so wonderful. God is talking about you. Man, I, I can't even have you look at me. I'm going to crack up. I'm going to break up. I, I'm not going to make it. Yesterday I was at a wedding and the, the gal sent a card to the man she was marrying to read right before he was to go up and get married. And he started to open it and he goes, I can't. If I read it, there's no way I'll make it through the ceremony. And he just put it in his bag. And I thought, you're probably right. And this is what the Lord is saying right here. Man, you guys are overwhelming me. You're going to break me up. You're so wonderful. And then he gives that same description as he gave last week as we looked at it. And in chapter 4, your hair is like the flock of goats going down from Gilead. How precious. Your teeth are like the flock of sheep which have come up from the washing. Every one bears twins, and none is barren among them. <laughs> we went into this last week, and it's actually quite beautiful and romantic, although it doesn't sound so in English these days. Like a piece of pomegranate are your temples behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. But my dove, my perfect one, is the only one. Boy, is this a cultural thing. Solomon says, I got 60 other queens, 80 concubines. Later on, he would have 300 queen, or 700 queens and 300 concubines. And that was the downfall of Solomon. But he says, you are the only one. And you know, we need to remember that, again, the Lord loves us here at Calvary Chapel and what God's doing in us. But also the Lord loves what's going on at the Baptist church. 
and the Assembly of God Church and the Presbyterian Church and all the other places that received our Lord Jesus Christ, although doctrinally we may disagree in some points, on the peripheral points, not the major points, and although their form of worship may be different to us, it may not really help us worship the Lord at all. But we need to, to realize, you know what? They are where they are. And God loves them. When my kids were two years old, and they came up and said, Dad, I, I colored a picture for you. And I look at the scribbles on a page. I don't say, this is nothing but a bunch of scribbling. Wow, throw it away. What do I do? I say, oh man, that's awesome, that's great. Let's stick it on the refrigerator, and up it goes, you know. And they are so proud of that scribble mark. And then they get to be five, do a little better, and then eight. And then before you know it, they really are quite the artists. But I can rejoice with them at each stage. I can rejoice with them where they're at. And in the same way, we need to be careful to say, well, what they're doing over there is kindergarten stuff. You know what? They still receive the Lord. And God can fellowship with them to the level and the maturity in which they are. But I realize, although we sense like we're the only ones, there still is the body of Christ is a big body. And he goes on to say, the only one of her, the favorite of the ones who bore her, the daughters saw her and they called her blessed, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. Who is she who looks forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? Again, looks forth as the morning, waking up clear, prepared, ready for that day. Fair as the moon at night, our hearts are open and prepared for the things of God, as clear as the sun, shining brightly as the sun. It's an awesome sight before the Lord, we, we his believers. And then she says, I went down to the garden of nuts. <laughs> That's a good, good, uh, good way to describe this church. Where'd you go to church today? I went down to the garden of nuts, Calvary Chapel. To see the vendor, the, the greenness of the valley to see whether the vine had budded and the pomegranates had bloomed. Before I was even aware, my soul had made me as the chariots of my noble people. So I went down and all of a sudden, before I could catch myself, I was caught away with the experience of the time. And then the beloved cries out, Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. Come on back, come on back home. Leave that, that garden area, come back to us that we might look upon you. What would you see in the Shulamite? As it were, the dance of the two camps or the double camps. Now, if you study this word out in the Hebrew, it's actually the word Manahim. And the first time it's ever used is in Genesis chapter 32, verse 1 and 2. And it's the place where Jacob is fleeing from Laban and at the end of chapter 31, he left Laban. And um, Laban said, don't come back this way or I'll kill you. And he turns and before him, he hears that his brother Esau is coming. 
And in chapter 32, verse 1 and 2, So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Manahim, or double camps. In other words, he thought, Oh boy, I barely escaped with my life with Laban. And then he turns around and, uh-oh, here comes, here comes Esau to kill me, who I stole his birthright and fled for my life. But then in the midst of that place, between a rock and a hard place, the angels of the Lord, the presence of God was there. And he realized, this isn't just my camp. The Lord's here. And I love that. What are you looking for? What are you wanting to see in the Shulamite? What are you wanting to see in the bride of Christ? I want to see the dance of the two lives. I want to see the dance of the two camps. In other words, yes, you're in human flesh. Yes, you make mistakes. Yes, you very much look like a sinner because you are a sinner. But at the same time, I see God in you. At the same time, I see the love of God in you. At the same time, I see the fruitfulness of God in you. And so to others, it looks like you're stumbling around, but to God, you're dancing before Him. One place in the world, in sinful flesh, but yet your life has been born again, changed again, and even though you're in sinful flesh, fighting a losing battle, the things we don't want to do, we do. The things we do want to do, we don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am. But yet we stay in human flesh. How many times do you just sort of go, Lord, take me out of here. Haven't I done enough? Take me home. But yet the Lord's pleased that you're hanging in there. And when you've done your job here, believe me, you're out of here in a second. God's not going to keep you around a second longer than you need to be. I was just told by my mom last night that uh, my cousin, her husband, 30 years old, right around there, um, went over to his friend's house and sat down and said, I'm tired. Do you mind if I take a nap for a minute? Laid down and died. Just like that. Neat Christian man, love the Lord. When your time is done, you're going to say, oh, I need to take a nap. You're going to be out of here. But until that time, keep doing the dance of the double camp. Keep fighting the flesh and doing the best you can to walk in the Spirit. Keep trying to say no to the things of this world, not being conformed to the things of this world, but continue being transformed by the renewing of your mind to walk in that perfect will of God. Well, in chapter 7, can we do it, guys? Real quick. I mean, basically I said everything I need to say. How beautiful, how beautiful are your feet in sandals. So gals, I don't understand about the shoe things, or guys with the, with the gals, I don't understand, you know. But, you, you know, it's, it's like, you know, the gal says, you know, I don't have any white shoes. And you go in, you say, what are these five pair of shoes? <laughs> that's cream, that's, you know, an off-white, that's, you know, a brownish-white, you know, I... I don't have a white pair of shoes. And it's like, well, I understand. You need that sixth <laughs> pair of shoes because... But anyway, he says here, how beautiful are your feet. How? In sandals. In the Old Testament, remember the Lord told Moses, take off those sandals. 
because he represented the law. And the law, you cannot walk before God. You cannot stand before God. The law, you die. But in the New Testament with the prodigal son, what did he say? Even though he came smelling like pig, even though he came with the filthy, ripped, torn garments, what does the father say? Here's my robe, here's my ring, and here are the sandals. Put them on. The Lord loves us, the church, walking before him as the king's kids. O prince's daughter, the curves of your thighs are like jewels. In other words, you're a moral person. You're, you're not being an immoral person. The work of the hands are a skillful workman. I see that you're doing the will of God and the Spirit of God's with you and you're operating in skill. Your navel is rounded goblet. <laughs> it lacks no blended beverage. In other words, again, the stomach is referring to the core of that person, the navel in which they were born from. It's saying the very essence, the very the very roots of your life are not mixed. In other words, there's no blended beverage. There's no mixed spices. There's no mixed drink in you. You're pure. You're solid. There's no compromise within you. Your waist is a heap of wheat. <laughs> Set about with lilies. So picture hips of wheat with a bunch of lilies around it. Um... Again, as you study through the scriptures, uh, the Lord compares us as believers as wheat. In other words, you're fruitful. Your life is fruitful. And it's not just a, a, a thing that you eat, but it's also beautiful. So yes, you're, you're hardworking. Yes, you're fruitful. But there's a beauty in your fruitfulness. And again, as we looked at last week, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of the gazelle. In other words, you're a, you have a fruitful life that is uh, giving out to others. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are like the pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath um, Rabim. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, <laughs> which looks towards Damascus. Um, <laughs> Again, in this culture, to have a pug nose uh, meant you were deformed. And uh, as you study in the law, it said that no person with a pug nose could ever serve before the Lord because no deformities could a person have. And of course, that was Old Testament, the law is physical, and the New Testament is spiritual. And they felt the larger your nose, the, the, the more renowned you were. The more, uh, that's a sign of, of royalty and nobility. And uh, you also can smell better. And, uh, <laughs> and so, that's the way they thought. So man, you've got this pronounced royal looking nose. And, uh, and again, it's, it's in reference to your senses. You're sensing what's happening, what's going on around you. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel, and the hair of your head is like purple. A king is held captive by your tresses. In other words, your hair is, is that of royalty, and I'm held, in, it's like a, a big trench. I'm held captive by you. You've got me in your, your ditch, and I can't get out. You've got me where you need me, and I, I can't escape uh, you because of your great beauty. How fair and how pleasant you are, 
O love, with your delights. The stature of yours is like a palm tree, and your breasts like its clusters. I said I will go up to the palm tree, and I will take hold of its branches. Let now your breasts be like clusters of vine, your fragrance of your breath, or your nose, literally, like apples, and the roof of your mouth like the best wine. The wine goes down smoothly for my beloved, moving gently by the lips, and literally, by the lips and teeth. That's what the Septuagint version says. And uh, this says the lips of sleepers. In other words, uh, just sort of, it's going by your lips. You're not just gulping it down, but you're sipping it in. I am my beloved's, and his desire is towards me. Come, my beloved, let us go forth to the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early in the vineyards. Let us see of the vine has budded, whether the grapes blossoms and are open and the pomegranates are in bloom, there I will give you my love. And the mandrakes give off a fragrance. If you study it out, the mandrakes were thought to be an aphrodisiac uh, in Genesis chapter 30, verse 14, when uh, Leah was having a hard time uh, conceiving. Reuben brought her mandrakes and, uh, and then the sisters quarreled over those mandrakes because they felt it was basically to, an aphrodisiac to help you get pregnant uh, as well. And at our gates are pleasant fruits, all manner, new and old, which I have laid up for you, my beloved. And so again, as we've talked about, the analogy can only go so far as we see God and his love for Israel and Christ and his love for the church. And this is also a, a marriage manual on sex and marriage. And so, in this portion of Scripture that I just read, uh, would be a venue in which I would discuss uh, on God's design on relation in marriage. And I will not do it here tonight. And in chapter 8, Oh, that you were like my brother, who nursed at my mother's breast. If I should find you outside, I would kiss you, and I would not be despised. In the culture of this time... Even though you were married, you could not show affection in public. But if you were brother and sister, you could. And so she's saying, man, right now in this public place, I wish you were like my brother because I could just hold on to you and kiss you and, and because that was okay in that culture. And I wish right now I could just grab onto you and had, instead of having to wait until we were alone in private. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to instruct me, I would cause you to drink of the spiced wine of the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head, his right hand embraces me, referring again into uh, sexual relationships. And as earlier in chapter 2, the same exact two verses are there. And then what does she say to the daughters, the virgins who are not yet married? I'm not going to go any farther on this subject. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. In other words, I'm not going to get you guys all hot and bothered and uh, when you have no outlet because you're not married yet. So just turn it off. Forget about what I'm talking about. I don't want to stir you up anymore. But you can know what you have to look forward to, a beautiful love and uh, that sexual relation in marriage and that marriage bed uh, which is uh, not to be defiled. But go right now, just let your passions go back to sleep until that time. And in verse 5, who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning, leaning upon her beloved? 
I awakened you under the apple tree. There my mother brought you forth. There she who bore you brought you forth. Again, this could be a picture of us, the church, coming with our Lord at the end of the tribulation period. And this could also be the Lord bringing out those Jews from that wilderness of Petra who have uh, been rescued from that tribulation period. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Now, if you have been with this, you know the high priest had a, uh, a vest that he wore, and on those were the stones on his, on his chest, over his heart, as well as upon his shoulders, which when he was to rep- be represented as carrying the children of Israel upon him, upon his heart and upon his shoulders, to pray for them, to intercede for them. And now she is saying, be that one that's I'm upon your heart and upon your arms. And guys, that's what you are to be doing. As Christ washes His wife with the water of the Word, so you also are to be that spiritual leader in your home. You're to be the high priest for your wife and to carry her upon your heart and upon your shoulders spiritually. For love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Literally, if you were to read this last sentence in the Hebrew, it would be the fire of Yahweh. And so here he's talking now about jealousy. And it's saying here it's a hard thing. It's a fiery thing. But as you read through the Bible, it says in a number of places that God is jealous for us. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, it says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. But yet, why is He jealous? He's not jealous like we are. That's my woman or that's my man. But he's jealous for us. He says, don't worship other gods. Why? Because he knows they're going to bankrupt you. He knows they're going to hurt you. He's not jealous saying, you're mine. He's jealous for you because he knows that you won't be blessed and benefited unless you make him your God. And in James chapter 4, it says, adulterers, adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit dwells in us, yearns jealously? To be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. And can't you sense the jealous spirit of God within you? Why does God not want you to be a part of the world? Because he knows you'll be quenched out, you'll be hindered, you'll be hurt. But if you focus upon the Lord, that's where you're going to be the most blessed. And so here he talks about that jealousy. It's a hard thing because God wants you not for himself in a selfish way, but he wants you to want him, to have a passion for him and none other, because that's the way you'll be the most blessed in this life. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. True love is deeper and greater than anything upon this earth. There's nothing that can replace it. There's nothing that can come even close to it. There's a proverb that says, a friend will love at all times. Let me tell you something. That's true. You never really know who your friends are until you go through hard times. And when you go through hard times and people that you thought would always be your friend, they can get shaken loose. Guess what? They were never your friend to begin with. They associated with you because it was convenient. They were your friend because it was 
to their advantage. But when you go through difficult times and they stick with you, when everybody else is turned against you, when everybody else is talking bad about you, when everybody else uh, sees you in a bad light and they continue to see you in a good light, that is your friend. And that love will always remain. A true friend loves at all times. And that friendship, that love, is there's no price tag that can ever be put upon it. We have a little sister now, and she has no breast. In other words, there's somebody that's a new believer here, and they're not yet living a fruitful life. They're not yet at a place where they can bless others and give out to others. What shall we do for our sister in the day when she is spoken for? So now they're, they're saying, we have this little sister, and what, what are we going to say when it's time for her to get married? Well, they said, well, if she's a wall, we will build upon her a battlement of silver. And if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. So in other words, if she has kept herself pure, she's not been a door and opened herself up to other men referring sexually. In other words, she's a virgin. She's kept herself pure. If she's a wall, that's something we can build on. That's something we can work with. That's something we can see go forward. But if she is a person who has given herself uh, to other men and she's not kept herself pure, then we need to enclose her and board her up. We need to have a season where we can help her establish a character and a life of purity. It says over in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, It says, Nevertheless, a solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. For in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful for the Master, prepared for every good work. Therefore, flee also youthful lust. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So there's some amongst us who are not vessels of gold and silver, sanctified, set apart for the Master's use. But in God's house, there's not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of clay and earthenware. Some vessels are great vessels of value and of honor, and they're fruitful. And there's other vessels that are in God's house. It says in 1 Corinthians 3, when the fire tests our lives, it says that all will be burned up except for the foundation. All all is lost, but yet they are saved. Who do we need to be? It says flee, youthful lust. Get away from those things. Be a wall to the world. Build a wall between you and the world. Don't have a door to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the things of this world. Shut that out so you can be sanctified, purified, set apart for the Master's use. Now she speaks up and says, I am a wall and my breasts are like towers. I am a fruitful person. I, am, I have matured to that place where I can give out. You brothers of mine can't see me for what I've grown into. Then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Bel Harmon. He leases the vineyard to keepers. Everyone was to bring for its fruit a thousand silver coins. 
My own vineyard is before me. So he says he has a vineyard. God has his church. And in that church, it's full of people that are bearing much fruit. People that are bringing in much money, so to speak, if you would. Storing up treasure in heaven. Preparing themselves. And she says, I'm a part of that. Oh, that Solomon may have a thousand just for me alone. And those who tend its fruits, two hundred. So may I be one that unto God is as fruitful as all the other church combined. And may my life be so fruitful that I can give out to others as well. Not a hundredfold, but two hundredfold. You who dwell in the gardens, the companions listen for your voice. Let me hear it. So here they come and now speak to all of us in the garden here tonight. And here we are. It says, let it be known about these things. We need to have a season where we can help her establish a character and a life of purity. It says over in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. It says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. For in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful for the Master, prepared for every good work. Therefore, flee also youthful lust. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So there's some amongst us who are not vessels of gold and silver, sanctified, set apart for the Master's use. But in God's house, there's not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of clay and earthenware. Some vessels are great vessels of value and of honor, and they're fruitful. And there's other vessels that are in God's house. It says in 1 Corinthians 3, when the fire tests our lives, it says that all will be burned up except for the foundation. All, all is lost, but yet they are saved. Who do we need to be? It says flee, youthful lust. Get away from those things. Be a wall to the world. Build a wall between you and the world. Don't have a door to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the things of this world. Shut that out so you can be sanctified, purified, set apart for the Master's use. Now she speaks up and says, I am a wall. And my breasts are like towers. I am a fruitful person. I, am, I have matured to that place where I can give out. You brothers of mine can't see me for what I've grown into. Then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Bel Harmon. He leases the vineyard to keepers. Everyone was to bring for its fruit a thousand silver coins. My own vineyard is before me. So he says he has a vineyard. God has his church. And in that church, it's full of people that are bearing much fruit. People that are bringing in much money, so to speak, if you would. Storing up treasure in heaven. Preparing themselves. And she says, I'm a part of that. Oh, that Solomon may have a thousand just for me alone. And those who tend its fruits, two hundred. 
So may I be one that unto God is as fruitful as all the other church combined. And may my life be so fruitful that I can give out to others as well. Not a hundredfold, but two hundredfold. You who dwell in the gardens, the companions listen for your voice. Let me hear it. So here they come and now speak to all of us in the garden here tonight. And here we are. It says, let it be known about these things. About what things? About the great intimacy we have with Christ. About his great passion and love and desire for us. And then it ends in verse 14. Make haste, my beloved. Interesting, the Bible ends in the same way. In Revelation, the Spirit and the Bride says, Come. Let him who hears say, Come. Let him who thirsts say, Let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. And then in Revelation 22, verse 20 and 21, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And so here we say, make haste, O my beloved, come. Lord Jesus, come. And be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. And that's exactly the way the Lord's going to come back. The next time Jesus said, you see me coming. Hold on just a minute, guys. You're making a little too much noise. He says right before when we see the Lord coming, he won't say, you've got to go out there and find him there. You'll find him there. But as the lightning flashes through the sky, so you will see him coming. The next time the Lord comes to this earth, we, the church, are going to come with Him. He's going to come springing out of the sky and landing upon the Mount of Olives. And right now our hearts are come, Lord Jesus. The Bible says that we need to be prepared for His coming. The Bible says watch and pray that you are counted worthy for that day. And so tonight, as always, we're going to spend some time seeking the face of God that our hearts would be right that our lives would be prepared, and that more than that, that we would be a fruitful garden that others can eat of, and that we would truly be saying to one another, speaking it out, concerning about Jesus. Lord, we do thank you for your word tonight, and we thank you again for the great insights and fruitfulness of this book. And Lord, we do ask in Jesus' name that we would have that intimate relationship with you, we hear of your passion and your love and your desire. You didn't leave it saying, I'm the shepherd and you're the sheep, period. Or I'm the father and you're the child. And that's the only analogy I want you to have. But you've gone far beyond that. You said we as the church is the bride. And you said the bride should be crying out, saying, come. That you desire us intimately. You want us in a very special way as a husband and a wife become one together that we also would be one in unity with you. Lord, we hear your heart of desire, of passion. Come away, my love. Come away, my fair one. And let us now rise up tonight and say, I am my beloved's and he is mine. And I will enter into that inner chamber with him. Let us come. Raise us up, Lord, to be men and women of God. And let this place be as you have desired, a house of prayer. We thank you for the house of teaching. We thank you for the house of worship. But we know what your true desire is, that first of all, prayers, supplication, with thanksgiving would be made. And that this house would be a house of prayer.